So uh, Numbers chapter 5, we're in the midst of this uh, section that begins here, uh, dealing with many rules and regulations uh, for the nation of Israel. They've already received the law in the book of uh, Leviticus, uh, and now uh, they are seeing a lot of its practical application and its outworking here. And so we're going to begin by addressing the command regarding leprosy. In verse 1 of Numbers chapter 5, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put both, or excuse me, you shall put them outside the camp, and they that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. The children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. Now, this could be referring to the leprosy of today, what is known as Hansen's disease, uh, but it covered any type of infectious skin disease. Now, that has its own significance uh, spiritually and uh, even historically, the fact that God and the nation of Israel and God through the nation of Israel was showing uh, the world that he understood more about creation and even the microbial world than humanity did for many millennia to come. He, he was commanding them to take health precautions that the world knew nothing of at the time, the, the spread of disease. Now, uh, that immediately becomes associated with sin. In the minds, the hearts, the religion, of the Jewish people, they begin immediately to equate uh, leprosy as being symbolic of sin. And very quickly, they also start associating having leprosy with being sinful, which is incorrect. Uh, the Lord uh, does a number of things to correct that throughout time. This separation that occurs here at the earliest stages of this nation's development uh, is not the prejudiced and the separation that we see the nation of Israel conducting itself with regard to leprosy when we're reading the New Testament when Jesus had arrived. It is much more what we would consider hospitalization. As these people were separated out from the nation, there were people that cared for them. There were people that cleansed them and attempted to heal them. And some of their ailments uh, were actually taken care of through medical uh, treatment. So it was simply the perspective that anyone who had these diseases needed to be quarantined away from the healthy. And then anyone who dealt with them, which is part of the reason that it also tells us that those who became defiled by corpses had to also be quarantined. 
Uh, I could chase that given what's going on in our culture right now for a long time. You know, the unhealthy quarantined from the healthy, not the healthy being quarantined away from everyone else. There's a biblical principle laid out for us here. In that same discussion, the idea of not defiling the camp. Now, if, if we just follow the line regarding spiritual uh, parallels, you know, the fact that uh, leprosy becomes this symbol of sin, uh, the rest of this chapter is going to deal with sin inside the camp. So we shift from leprosy directly into a discussion about sin and how it affects the camp. I need to be really blunt again about the fact that the modern church has become completely tolerant of sin in its midst. It allows it. It encourages it. It endorses it. Listen. Grace and forgiveness is necessary for the church to know and to administer. But there are things that the church engages in today in the name of tolerance, which completely corrupt the church. That turn the church into a bastion of sin. Now we have whole denominations and organizations of Christianity that are literally endorsing sin. You know, putting out in front of their church that they're open and affirming. Listen, we love the homosexual. And we welcome them here to experience the same grace and forgiveness that Christ delivered into our lives to deliver us from our own sexual sin many of us were involved in. It needs to be the clarity of God's word, not the opinions of human beings that we govern ourselves by. It's it's such a strange thing to me to see the Lord specifically say in the book of Corinthians that the church has no business judging the world. You following me on this? That the world, right, does not know the Lord. We are told that we were blind in our sins until the Lord allowed us to see them, gave us vision, healed us from our sin. I've often given the illustration about how foolish it would be for us to go out and mock and protest the blind man. I mean, how cruel are you if the poor individual is working his way around with his stick and you're out there, you know, making fun of him and yelling at him and saying cruel things to him because he's blind? The world knows no better than to participate in their sin. And Paul tells us in Corinthians specifically to not judge the world. That's God's job. But within the church, we are commanded to judge those who are living in sin. For the health of the church. This is a body, right? If you suddenly discover that you've got cancer, one of the main priorities in your medical treatment is to get that cancer out of your body, right? I don't care if you're, you know, holistic or you want to nuke yourself with literal, you know, 
chemistry. Whatever approach you're going to take, I'm going to be right there with you praying. But you've got to get the cancer out of your body. This leprosy, symbolic of sin. New Testament direct references telling us the sin in the body needs to be dealt with. Now, now move another step into this discussion. We're at the end of, I believe, all of human history. But, I'll, you know, I'll say blatantly, I believe we're at the end of this nation. As, as much as I want to turn the ship around, right? You know, okay, please vote in November and vote godly. Look for candidates whose opinions most closely line up with the word of God. Right? If you're sitting there nervous, like, oh, I feel like he's going to endorse a candidate. Uh, I just might specifically tell you who to vote for as a Christian. There's nothing they can do about it. That whole lie of separation of church and state, and let me just be very clear, lie. Nowhere is it said in our founding documents that the preachers of America cannot endorse specific candidates. You don't agree with that? Then you can vote with your feet and walk out the door. That's the way it's always been. They can't come in here and do anything about that. Because this is a God-given freedom to stand here and declare the truth of God's word to the body of Christ. It's not given to us by government. Right? Those that founded this government were examining the truth of God's creation and they rec recognized God created human beings with freedom because he's the ultimate government he wrote all of the laws all of them all of humanity's laws that are good and right are based upon his laws and he is the one that we must be in submission to in that he gave us freedom to not be in submission to him right that's why humanity is where it is at. We have God-given freedom. Anytime the government steps in and says, I'm taking that away from you, that's tyranny. That's why the people of this nation, listening to the preachers in the Great Awakening, threw off the government of King George and formed this country. Now, that's all deteriorated to the junk that we're seeing going on all around us. The only thing, the only thing that is going to save this nation is if the church of Jesus Christ, not the Mormons, that's a cult, if the church of Jesus Christ repents of her sin. That's it. We will become effective ministers to those that are lost. We will invite them into the kingdom. But as long as the church is filled with the corruption of sin, then there is no hope for our nation. It's over. We will be relegated 
to the trash heap of history along with every other great empire that has ever risen. Right? America forever, people say. Oh, that'd be wonderful. The problem is there have been many nations that have risen and said Greece forever. <laughs> Gone. Right? You say, no, it's still around. No, it's not. The Greece of history is gone. Rome, gone. Go down through the annals of history and see. They're all, and you know how long they last? We talked about this on Thursday night. 250 years. That's how long they last. 250 years. Because there are 10 generations of roughly 25 years they cycle through. First generation has their children around 25 years of age. That generation grows up, has its children around 25 years of age. Each generation wants the next generation to have it better than they did. So we create an atmosphere of decadence, which becomes completely godless, corrupt, and it's destroyed. The only nation... The only nation in world history that has survived beyond the, the roughly 250-year mark is the nation of Israel. Because they would repent and they would get rid of the sin. They would purge their nation, get rid of the idolatry, stop killing their children, and worship God as they were supposed to. And God would restore their nation. Listen, in the occasions where they wouldn't, God put them into slavery and he purged their nation. He cleansed their nation and then he restored them. Our only hope, no matter how it unfolds, our only hope is a return to worshiping Jesus Christ. That's you and me. That's not us forcing the nation outside these walls to do it. We need to lead by example, show them and invite them into that. Are you sincere? Are you true? That's what you're going to ask yourself this morning. Is the leprosy in your life, is the sin in your life hidden? Are you holding on to other ideologies and doctrines and behaviors that are not of Christ? Because if you are, then you're dying as you sit here. You're filled with the spiritual example of this corruption. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Put it to personal application and then put it to the broader application. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Repentance. Repentance is what brings that about. Wow, this guy, hellfire and brimstone. I wasn't expecting that. I was just you know, hoping to have a nice sermon. Yeah, hellfire and brimstone's been lost from the church, hasn't it? Guess what? Hellfire and brimstone haven't gone anywhere. They're in the same place they've ever been, and they will be for eternity. We don't want to be there. 
And we want to save everyone that we can from it. Chapter 5, verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness, notice this, against the Lord, and that person is guilty. Now, before we move on, we need to discuss sin. As I said moments ago, God is the lawgiver. All law extends from God establishing one creation and then the truth of creation through that. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Our culture and much of the church today looks right at God's word, sees whatever sin we're talking about described in God's word and says, nah, I don't agree with that. It really doesn't matter if you agree with that. It matters not at all. The one who created you, created us, is the one who gets to say what is and what is not lawful, what is and is not sin. All sin is against God. I might sin against you, but I'm sinning against God and it's affecting you. Because he's the one who said whether it's right or wrong. So it's a lack of submission to God. Psalm 51 verse 4, David saw another man's wife, stole her in an adulterous affair, and then had that man murdered. If I'm Uriah, who David did that to, I feel profoundly like he sinned against me. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't much feel like that sin is against anybody other than Uriah. But David records Psalm 51, verse 4, as he repents, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood that God is the one who gets to say what is right and wrong and that he needs to be in submission to him. And if he's not, then it is sin. Joseph. Right? Patriarch of Israel, one of the sons of the patriarch, was given a position of power in Potiphar's household. That woman tried to seduce him. And in the midst of the confrontation, as he breaks away from her and basically says, I want nothing to do with this, he says, Genesis 39, verse 9, there is no greater in this house than I. He had been given the ultimate position of authority in Potiphar's house. Nor has he, Potiphar, kept uh, back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness of committing adultery with her? And then he says, and sin against God. Not against Potiphar. If you sin against God, you may sin against your neighbor in the process, but it's the sin against God. And it's significant that we understand this. We live in a culture that says that certain sins don't affect my neighbor. Okay, I beg to differ. I beg to differ about that assessment. I was just having a discussion with some guys the other night about, you know, 
alcoholism, drunkenness, and drug use, and now the legalization of marijuana in our culture. Now, some of you are not familiar with me, and I don't mean to be offensive uh, with anybody here, but my background is not as pure as the driven snow, okay? When I was in high school, uh, I was a drug addict, and afterward. And uh, some of us grew up at a time when uh, everybody here remembers the smoking area in high school, right? Right? When I first started at Bangor High School, there was a cigarette vending machine in the high school. So, you know, it was a different world. I smoked pot all day, every day. And uh, when I attended Dexter High School, I got into an argument with my science teacher on a handful of occasions about how marijuana was not bad and how, uh, in particular, I thought that I drove better when I was high. And he tried to explain to me that that wasn't possible. And... uh, Science followed lunch, so go to lunch, get out of lunch, go to the smoking area, get really high, go to science class. That was my method. So the days before this occasion that I'm describing, my science teacher has gone through the whole mathematical process of explaining to us how at different rates of speed, you're covering so many feet a second in your vehicle. And your reaction time is what is critical, right? You might drive more cautiously and drive even a little slower and be all bug-eyed and stare at the road and think you're driving better in that condition. But your reaction times are dramatically affected. So I do my routine through the smoking area to science class on this particular day. And he says to me, Mr. Cass, I'm so glad to see you today. Because we have driving simulators here. And we're going to test the class reaction time. And I'm as baked as you can imagine. So, we each take our turns sitting in the driving simulator. And it's a simple one with a gas pedal and a brake pedal and a video screen. And you're driving down the highway, and all you got to do is accelerate or brake. And the little girl jumps out in front of you, and you have to take your foot off the accelerator and hit the brake, you know, in the video. I ran that poor kid over, over and over and over and over again. You know, the exemplary students who just weren't high were stopping in like four and a half feet. You know, 20 feet, 36 feet before that video image. I'm, you know, four feet beyond the video image before I pick my foot up off the gas pedal. Our sin is not just affecting us, right? Our culture has this mentality of, who are you to tell me? This is mine. I do what I want with mine. And, you know, 
hey, uh, to my libertarian brothers, I agree with a lot of that, a lot of that position. I disagree with a lot of that position. Because there is an authority over man. And you may not understand why he has recorded what he has recorded. The thing that benefits us all is when we believe him to be God and the lawgiver and we obey him because of who he is. That's what changes us. Not because, oh, I've examined it and now I've come to the place where I agree with it. You may never agree with it. You may never agree with it. That doesn't matter. If God declares it to be wrong, then we need to be in submission for it. Okay, for my relationship with God, mostly, but listen, my relationship with you, right? I may never even rec- I may never recognize how it affects you. But it does. It may not be about reaction times. It may be an entirely different subject. But understanding that God's, God's ways are so far above our ways that we need to trust His wisdom and benefit one another in the process. Does that make sense? Praise God. So, Verse 7 says, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. I want to give you two points in regard to that. 1 John 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all the believers said, amen. Thank God for his perfect cleansing, his complete renewal. But there's also a verse a lot of Christians don't like and they avoid. It comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16, that says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's interesting to me how many Christians know the second half of the verse and they aren't even aware that the first half of the verse is connected. I've I've had many people say, oh, the effective fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Yeah, they do. In regard to sin. Now listen. Depending on what your sin is, you might want to be really careful who you confess to. Right? Because if your sin is drunkenness or drug addiction or adultery, if you confess your sin to the person whose sin is gossip, you may be creating a bigger problem. You need to you need to have somebody in your life that you confess to that needs to be someone mature. That means you need to develop relationships in the body of Christ that are that close. That you're close enough to to talk about what's going on in your filthy, rotten heart and trust them with that information. You will not believe. If you will begin to do this, you will not believe the degree to which this frees you from the sin that may have held you in its grip your whole life. 
sharing with someone, right? And then that person being in prayer for you and with you, the effective, fervent prayers of a righteous person avail much in your life. This is a necessary element of our whole existence. Okay, really hold the thought here. Maybe you've drifted a little bit. Bring it all back and think here with me. Leprosy was the death of the nervous system. So the illness and injury that was occurring to the body, the information would not be relayed to the brain. The fingers and the hands, right, might reach right out and grab a hold of the cast iron skillet off the fire, and as it sears the hand, the leper doesn't even feel it. Doesn't even feel it. And sets it down over here and goes about their business, and it's much later when, wow, what happened to my hand? And now they put it in all kinds of other filthy things that have created infection and right we see the movies and read the books and think of it as just the flesh rotting away and what's going on is the nervous system is dying inside the body is not communicating with the body the thing that is wrong do you see the parallel of confessing your sin to someone You're going to keep it to yourself, experiencing the injury of your sin over and over and over and over again, but not relaying it to anyone else. Oh, it's the image of leprosy. And it kills the whole body. It kills the whole body. Not just the one suffering from it. This is a trick our enemy has snared us with. It's going to be too embarrassing People are going to gossip about you. You need to keep this to yourself. Don't ever tell anyone. And you die. And here's the thing. in the process, You spiritually die. And in the process, you don't even realize you're killing others with your sin. You're spreading it. You say, how does that happen? That makes no sense. When I stand right here and I tell you of my drug addiction, And I stand right here as your pastor and I tell you how Christ freed me from pornography. That may give you the freedom to sit there and say, wow, maybe I could be freed also. The body communicating with the body, the injury sustained from sin and Christ's healing capability in the process. Free yourself. Open your mouth. Talk to someone. Seek their help. Look around. Be careful. Look around. Find someone you can trust. Find someone who is trustworthy. And start with developing a friendship. My good friend, Rick Bowden, if he's watching online, he's just going to smack me in the head for doing this. My good friend Rick Bowden was an interesting character, to say the least. And uh, he ended up in my friend Chick Chikelis' church. And Chick 
went to him after a year and said, I've been watching you, Rick, and I've noticed you have no friends in this church, that you've isolated yourself. And Rick did a, you know, explanation, excuse thing, and Chick listened very carefully and said, I'm going to give you one year. And at the end of a year, you have to have two solid friends from this church in your life, or I'm kicking you out and you're never welcome back here. Pastoral discipline. And there was, you know, like a, an interchange of what? Like, where's that in the scripture? And, uh, at the end of two years, Rick had many friends and was holding Bible studies in his home and leading other people in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. When somebody just stepped in and said, there's a problem here, you're not communicating with the body of Christ and interacting with them, that's got to change. I put the charge out to you today and say, the same thing needs to happen in each of our lives. Have you found a, a way to isolate yourself in this fellowship? Stop doing that. Reach out and talk to people. And here's, here's another challenge within that. Reach out to someone that's more mature than you. Right? Because we like to find people that are like on the same level or maybe even like weaker and younger than us because then there's no challenge there. Nobody that looks at you and says, what is wrong with you? You got to have somebody, Right? Paul and Timothy, we say, you've got to have a Paul in your life who trained Timothy, and then you need to have a Timothy in your life. Someone you're learning from and someone that you're teaching that needs to be present. So, you need to confess to others. He shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass. Payment, literally. In full, plus one-fifth, 20%. And give it to the one who was wronged. So this implies some degree of theft or loss. <clears throat> but if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. In addition to the ram of the atonement, which atonement is made for him. That's mentioned in Leviticus 6.6. 6. I just want to sidestep a moment and say so this is in light of maybe that person isn't even available or alive anymore right so if you're doing something like that with this right well okay there was sin and maybe i should go but they've moved away so nothing i can do <laughs> look even here if they've died you've got to find one of their relatives admit you're wrong and pay the relative back so you don't get to say, oh, well, they're not around anymore. That means if there is some kind of wrong and friction, you need to go and make correction to that relationship. Also, this ram of atonement is the offering made that goes to God. So you've got to give whatever belongs to the person to the person, and then you've also got to give to God because this whole thing is about restoring your relationship with God. One more time, the term atonement can be broken down into at one meant. Right? We need our relationship with the Lord to be restored to the point where we are once again at one with Him. So, however you approach 
This, in your life, it needs to be, you're making sure above anything else, you are at one with God, in right relationship with him, and your neighbor. New Testament application, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the same message, Old Testament, New Testament. We need to make sure we're doing what the Lord calls us to. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his, meaning the person who brings it. And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest shall be his. This is to keep others from taking advantage of us in our sins. So that the priest can't say, well, I've noticed that you sinned, so you owe me money. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of that happening in history somewhere along the way. You know, paying for indulgences. The priesthood allowing people to go sin. You could literally pay for your sins. There was a time in history before you did them. So that if you died during them, you were already covered. Isn't that weird? So messed up. Man, we will, we will take God's word and turn it into a pile of junk. Just, I'm headed out this weekend. I know we're going to be partying. I tend to lose track of things. So I'm just going to make a big deposit right now before I head out. Horrible. Horrible. And then they were justified. This is why Stalin said religion is the opiate of the masses. We sedate our conscience with it. It's supposed to be at one minute, right? Imagine if I came to you, right? If this relationship between us and God was like my relationship with you, and I said to you, now I'm going to wreck a bunch of your stuff and steal a bunch of your stuff and vandalize a bunch of your stuff this weekend, so I just want to give you some money right now. And even if you accept the money and then I go and do all of those things to you, and then we run into one another, you know, next week I'm like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> You're not going to feel all pleasant about me. We're not at one with one another. I have damaged our relationship. Don't, don't take what's supposed to be a relationship with God and turn it into some kind of religion. Verse 11, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required, uh, required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, which is the requirement for a meal or grain offering like this. In this case, no oil or uh, fragrant incense with it because it is a grain offering of jealousy an offering for remembering for bringing iniquity to remembrance now before we move on while this is written in light of husbands in regard to wives right 
we surely have to look at Jesus' application from the New Testament who says, men, if you simply look at a woman to lust after her, then you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Okay, so, so hidden sexual sin is what's being described here. Oh, if there's a plague in the church today, uh, it's incredible you know, the, the degree to which this is going on and the degree to which this is accessible. There is no sin that brings greater shame than sexual sin. Not my assessment. That's the scripture. Every other sin is outside the body. Sexual sin is against your own body, the scripture says. Very, very damaging. Whether you know it or not. Again, like leprosy, it's one of those things that so warps and changes your mind that you will not even realize how it has changed you and how you're affecting other people. No, no showing of hands, but how about this? Have any of you had the unfortunate experience of seeing a video of yourself when you used to consume alcohol? Wow, do you look like an idiot. Right? And if you've seen that, a big portion of the embarrassment is the realization that, wow, in that moment, I thought I was Superman. And now that I'm looking at myself, I was a buffoon. The stark difference. I had a friend of mine many years ago come to me very angry. You need to go with me to the bank, he says. I said, what's going on? The bank has ripped me off. What are you talking about? I had $2,500 in my bank account. They're telling me there's zero there. I've had long discussions and arguments with them. We are going to the bank right now, and I am having it out with them. So I'm all riled up with my friend Dan, like, let's go tell them. And we arrive there, and Dan, right to the bank manager. It's all been prearranged. We walk in. And the bank manager is like, who is this? Dan's like, this is my friend Will, and he's going to be witness to these conversations, and we're not putting up with this. And the bank manager is saying to me, you probably do not want to come with us. And I'm saying, oh, I do. This is before I knew the Lord. And they try to talk us out of it, and Dan insists, and I insist, so they take us into a room. And they sit us down and even ask us, would you like a drink, want some coffee? No. Okay, we just want you to watch this tape, and they press play and walk out of the room. And it's Dan walking, staggering up to the ATM, bang, you know, putting his card in and pulling out and money and, you know, in his pocket. He's drunk. And off he goes. And then the next clip of Dan. And the next clip of Dan and the next clip and the clip where he slams into the ATM machine and falls down onto the ground is out of sight for like a minute and a half 
And then the hand comes up and, you know, your Dan's back up. <clears throat> Dan in blackouts has been going to the ATM over and over and withdrawing money. And he's oblivious to it. Sexual sin that is hidden causes a change in our person that we don't even recognize and we are making massive withdrawals from our lives that are very damaging. Very damaging. Here, the Lord is going to set out a method by which this situation can be corrected. The other side of this discussion is jealousy. Founded or unfounded jealousy and how it must be corrected. So let's be clear. This is not just the Lord describing for us how to catch one person in their sin. This is the Lord telling us that this type of hidden sin in a couple's life will destroy them. And repentance is what is required because the Lord's desire is healing. The Lord wants to heal and make well. What's about to be described, it's important also to recognize that the Lord is giving them this as a law beforehand so that they'll know, okay, if I do this, I may be required to do what's written here in the word. So if you go all the way down the road into this behavior, it's with the full knowledge that this law exists. And in the end, you're doing this to yourself, is what the Lord is saying, right? If you didn't know it beforehand, that's one thing. And somebody just comes up and says, hey, this is the law. And you're like, I have no idea. No, they know. They know beforehand. The Holy Spirit is a very gracious gift to us. Some of us participated in certain sins with absolutely no knowledge of right and wrong. And then when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, it grants us conviction. Conviction is a wonderful thing. Think of this in light of the leprosy we were talking about moments ago. If someone was burning their hands, imagine the horror in the realization of I don't have this nervous system, physical sensation anymore. And then the day comes where it's restored. And you're like, oh my goodness, I can feel that now. What a gracious thing to have the feeling restored. Right? Again, no show of hands, but who in the room would not love to have their innocence restored? to go back to where their conscience was clean and dramatically affected when they said or thought or did certain things. It's a beautiful thing when the Holy Spirit comes. Verse 8 of John chapter 16, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Proverbs 28.13, I'm getting to the passage. Proverbs 28.13, as an overarching principle, have you 
looked at your life over and over and said, like, why can't I get ahead? Why am I constantly hitting the wall? Why is it that there's always these massive struggles? Proverbs 28, 13, he who hides his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses, and notice this, and forsakes them, leaves them behind, will have mercy. Let God heal and restore. Back to Numbers chapter 5, verse 16, the priest shall bring her near, the one who's been accused, set her before the Lord, the priest shall take holy water that's used in the ceremonial cleansing inside the temple, and an earthen vessel. Take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head. Uh, Her hair would be unraveled. That was uh, a sign of vulnerability and a sign of her beauty also. So uh, let her hair uh, drape down to full length and put the offering for remembering in her hands. So a bag or bowl, the whole weight of the grain would be put in her hand, which the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. Okay, Um, The Jewish scholars connect Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, to this ceremony where it says, So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Speaking as the curse upon Satan himself in the symbol of the snake. Uh, There's another whole wisdom behind that that's quite interesting because the snake sees more with his tongue than he does his eyes or any other sense. They lick the air and they have what's called the Jacob's gland in the roof of their mouth and they're able to analyze literally what's in front of them from tasting the air they they can literally it's it's hardwired to their brain and their eyes uh, collectively they can they're seeing with their tongue by tasting the dust of the air so go do some research on that right god saying to the serpent you're going to be on your belly and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life Here, now think of this, you guys, in light of what's being said. She's going to have to drink of the dust from the floor of the tabernacle. And it's supposed to be revealing her sin. So showing, giving vision to whether she has sinned or not based upon the drinking of this. The priest shall put her under oath, verse 19, and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, meaning married to him, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath 
of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among the people. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Now, if you're trying to imagine the thigh rotting and the belly swelling, we get the explanation that what's being said is that she will be unable to bear children. So, Uh, bringing this from the Hebrew language into the English language left us with a phraseology that doesn't give us the picture that the Jews understood. It tells us in just a moment, she will be unable to bear children. That's the idea of she's going to develop an illness of her femininity that keeps her from having children. So, verse 23, the priest shall... Write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the water, off from the page, and he shall make the woman drink the water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become a curse. So you're going to eat your own words, literally. You've made the statement that I agree with this, and so be it. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord, bring it to the altar after the priest. After this, the priest who would offer the grain offering, a picture of fellowship and thanks to God. And the accused woman would drink the bitter water. Verse 26, the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free. And here it is, may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that the woman shall bear her guilt. Trust within a marriage is essential. Sexual purity is essential. I want to take just a minute. I know we're past time, but I want to explain something about our culture again. Alfred Kinsey published a series of studies about human sexuality that resulted in what is known as the sexual revolution of the 60s here in America. It was decades before the courts and America began to realize that what Kinsey had published came from his research amongst the most violent sexual criminals in England. 
He's telling the world this is normal sexual behavior. That was used. That document was used to argue for the legalization of pornography and the allowance of the production of Playboy magazine and then eventually Hustler. Kinsey's studies, the father of the sexual revolution, studying criminal sexual behavior, reporting to the world, particularly America, this is normal sexual behavior. All of the subjects that he was studying were in prison, most of them for the rest of their life, many of them for raping and murdering people. And he's saying this is normal sexual behavior. We then, as a nation, base our sexual behavior upon his findings. Some of you were alive as you watched the sexual revolution explode into the 60s. Psalm chapter 1 says, blessed, happy, literally, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Kinsey was a criminal. We found out years later that he was a child molester. And much of what he was recording in his books was from his own experiences and experimentation with children. Our nation right now, the fact that you walk through the checkout line and all of that pornography is right there for you to see. And you go, what pornography? That's how comfortable you've become with it. Sports Illustrated pornography. Cosmopolitan pornography. Our daughters being encouraged to dress the way they are. Tell me, tell me, this culture's thigh has not rotted and its stomach swollen. 65 million children aborted since 1973. There's only 330 million Americans. They're literally saying that a big portion of the problem we're experiencing right now in America's retirement is because we vacuumed all those people right out of the workforce, you guys. They're not paying in because they're not alive. This nation needs to repent. We are broken. We are sick. We are twisted. We are murderous people. There is no hope for this nation unless it repents, unless it turns its heart to the Lord. Oh, yeah, written about women, right? I mean, tell me this doesn't apply to men. Come on. Like God is one-sided like that. We know he absolutely is not. Our heart needs to be pure. We need to walk through these doors having kept ourselves from this garbage as we sit down with one another and raise our hands to him and thank him for his grace and sing and worship. We need to be the beacon that directs people, directs people to God, brings people to this salvation.
We are the hope of our nation. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, again, we are so deeply grateful for all that you do, all that you are. Help us to be men and women who trust you, who follow you with our lives. We're desperately in need of your work, individually, collectively, nationally. We are desperately in need of your work. Bring awakening. Bring revival. Pour your spirit out upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.